it's easy. I think especially for me when I was younger, sometimes it's easy to move through the world kind of like maybe compromising a lot. And there's something to be said for having a real clear vision of like, this is what I'm into. This is, and we're talking about, we were talking about expressivity and music too. Having that sense of like, this is what I'm going for. I'm going to do it. And it's not for everybody necessarily. Greetings, everybody. Keith Billick here, bringing you the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, which, of course, is your one-stop shop for all the nerdiest banjo conversation and banjo information that uh, that you can handle. So if that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. Welcome in. You know, I actually got my hopes up. You uh, regular listeners will know that oftentimes when the weather turns nicer, I like to record these things in my backyard studio. And like I said, I got my hopes up the other day. I had an afternoon gig and came home with a sunburn from the 80 plus degree sun. And within 24 hours, it was snowing again. So thanks to the Michigan weather for dashing my hopes. Hopefully I will get out to that famous suburban Detroit backyard studio very, very soon. But for now, it will have to be a, uh, a much more common suburban Detroit basement type of episode. But you know who doesn't let me down is Daniel Miller. Daniel is today's Patreon supporter of the show. He hosts a bluegrass jam out on Cape Cod. So he, of course, is doing his part to promote the banjo proliferation into society here. And, of course, is doing his part by uh, generously supporting the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. So, Daniel, thank you so much. It is much appreciated. And how do you become a supporter of the show? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is how. You go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and sign up to chip in just a couple dollars a month to help support the show. And it really does help. And you also get cool rewards as a special thanks for your support. One of those rewards is you get invited to a monthly video hangout with me and your fellow listeners. That's the VIP Very Important Picker Lounge. And this month's VIP Lounge will be Wednesday, April 26th. That's going to be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope you all can join me there. Once again, go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to find out more about that. Thanks also to the official sponsors of the show. That's Elderly Instruments, Peghead Nation, and Sullivan Banjos. Couldn't do it without all of you as well. And of course, you can always contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Today's featured guest is Ben Krakauer. Ben has a very creative and highly inventive banjo style. And I feel like Ben often gets a little overlooked because he's not in some big successful touring band or anything like that. But those of us who have lived 
in the banjo world for a while are definitely admirers of his creativity and his unique sound. In fact, one of the coolest banjo moments of my life was witnessing about an hour-long three-banjo jam with Ben, Chris Pandolfi, and Noam Pikelny. Now, Ben claims to not even remember that this happened, but it had a, uh, <laughs> a lasting impact on me, to say the least. I don't even think I could speak for an hour or two after witnessing that. In the meantime, Ben has kept busy getting a degree in ethnomusicology, studying music in far-off places, which you will hear about, and is now a professor of traditional arts and music down at Warren Wilson College. He has now released two albums of his original instrumental music in recent years, uh, the first of which was already discussed on this podcast uh, for a freshly picked episode some time ago, and uh, the most recent one called Hidden Animals just came out, and we will be discussing that along with stories about his background, his career, touring with David Grisman, and much more. So give a warm picky fingers welcome to Ben Krakauer. I, I live. I currently live in Swannanoa, North Carolina, for the most part. My my partner's in Philadelphia, so I'm I'm in Philly a lot, also. But but Western North Carolina, and I got into banjo when I was 15. I my friends already played guitar. I wanted to play something. Like my older brother was playing guitar, and he was sounding really good uh, coming home from college and sh- sort of showing what he was learning about improvisation on the electric guitar. And I thought that was really cool. But my friends already played guitar, and I had some banjo recordings I liked a lot. There is a recording of Pete Seeger doing this song called Talking Union, which is like a Woody Guthrie type, like, you know, pro-labor song with Callhammer banjo that I liked a lot. And uh, a Doc and Merle album that, that my dad had picked up that had um, the one called Down South that had Merle playing banjo on Twin Sisters. So again, Callhammer banjo. I connected with this local teacher named Bill Gurley, who's this amazing musician, become, you know, he's become a great friend and, and mentor and stuff. And, and he was like, well, you know, I play, I play bluegrass banjo. So check out Earl Scruggs, check out Tony <laughs> Trishka. And he pointed me out to different, he, you know, he, he suggested different stuff for me to check out. And it was just great. I mean, I just, you know, it was all for it. It was, it was just really, really fun once I started taking lessons with him. Now, did you, did you already say how old you were when that was happening? Uh, I was 15. Okay, right on. And so banjo was your first instrument? Sort of. Um, I did, you know, we all do, all the kids do like recorder and stuff like that at school at some point. I did trombone for a couple weeks and it didn't stick. Uh, But I I actually did uh, fife. I played fife because I'm from Williamsburg. So I was in the boys like fife and drum corps. It was all boys back then. Interesting. And um, so I did that for a couple of years and actually made some money with it. They paid us minimum wage to (laughs) to do that. Um, Wow. But then uh, I quit, and then after a couple of years, I got into banjo. Right on. So what kind of, I mean, you, you said you were, were hearing the, the Seeger and the Doc and Merle stuff, um, which is largely like singer-songwritery for the most part. What do you think it was about the sound of the banjo that made you want to participate in it like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, 
I just know my friends and I were, or one friend in particular, we were like playing video games after school. Like, you know, <laughs> people of a certain generation were going to recognize this kind of thing. Like you get home from school and have snacks and play video games and we'd listen to music. And we both had listened to some of that kind of stuff. Like Pete Seeger in particular, we both had listened to that when we were growing up. So in addition to everything else we were listening to, some of that got in the rotation. And it just sounded so, um, just the tone of the banjo. I mean, I, I don't know... It just sounded so cool and just so different, just such a rich sound. I mean, it, the same things we love about banjo now, it just has such a rich character to it. It's just, it's like a real, yeah, really like a rich character to it. So something about that drew me in. That that song, Talking Union, you know, it's got, it's one of these songs that has this like one, four, five progression. There's just something about mm -hmm. that. I mean, one, four, five is great. You know, we played bluegrass music, like this, just that, like that tonality and the banjo sound over that. And then, and this, and this tune on the Doc and Merle album was this tune called Twin Sisters, which is like one of these, what we call like modal, you know, fiddle tunes and banjos probably in that sawmill tuning where the, where you have the like G, but with your B string up to C. And that's mm. still like, just, I mean, one of my favorite sounds for fiddle tunes and, and, and on both of my albums, I've got a couple tunes written in that tonality. Cause yeah, so I think that the tone of the instrument and just the types of music that, you know, I was hearing it with just. I just love those sounds. And where did you start with you once you hooked up with uh did you say his name was Bill? Yeah, Bill, Bill Gurley? Gurley. Yeah. What kind of stuff were you working on with him and how quickly did you develop into, you know, maybe something that we would more recognize as as your playing today? Yeah, well, he had a really great um teaching methodology in that it was like, here's something, have it memorized next week and let's play it together or trade lead and back up. I guess that's pretty standard for, you know, how, how a lot of banjo, banjo teachers teach, but he definitely had that expectation that like, have it memorized, let's play it. And he would like push the tempo. So like he'd play guitar and I'd play banjo and he'd push okay. me past my comfort zone, which is, um, you know, that's when I teach, I tend to get people playing real slow. I just want them to play accurate, you know, play real slow, get it dialed in, speed up later. But one thing I appreciate from him, which I'd like to incorporate more, is he'd be like, great, sounds good. Okay, here we go. And he'd push it off really fast. <laughs> and that was kind of, it's kind of like the experience you get when you go to a jam session or if you're on stage and someone kicks it off fast. Is So that was good learning experience. And he taught me a lot of bluegrass stuff, but he was from like, you know, he, he was from that sort of like 70s, like newgrass scene. So, and in fact, um, the band, some of your listeners, I'm sure know uh, Cloud Valley, this band that Bill Evans played in. Bill Gurley yeah. wrote a lot of songs that they recorded. So he was part of that same kind of scene. And um, he played on a gig or two with Trishka back in the day, like, you know, cause he's a multi-instrumentalist. He does guitar and banjo and fiddle. So he was like turning me on to telling me to check out Old in the Way. Cause I think he knew I'd like that stuff. And then later he uh -huh. chastised me for listening to them too much because my banjo playing. <laughs> I mean, I love Jerry's banjo playing. I think he's an awesome banjo player, but but I remember him giving me crap at one point about, you know, I needed to <laughs> stop listening to quite so much uh, Jerry Garcia banjo playing. Um, <laughs> Do you think he perceived that, it, uh, like, what was his issue with that, I wonder? Was there something about Jerry's playing that you were mimicking that was maybe undesirable? Or what was the deal with that? That's a good question. I mean, when I think of Jerry's playing, I think of it at, like... He kind of pops the his well he'd use different fingers i guess for him it probably would have been his ring finger but for us it would have been like our middle finger he kind of pops that middle finger a lot so it's less of like the even roll that you get with like obviously scruggs is like the epitome of that super even kind of articulation but even like crow and and later players it's still like there <laughs> you're not popping the middle finger quite as much 
What's interesting though is that when I got when I studied more the like more like hardcore like driving bluegrass playing the player who I was attracted to was Sammy Sheeler and he's another person who does pop his middle finger quite a lot like I would say a little more than the other fingers he doesn't sound like Jerry Garcia but yeah so let me stop you there let's I, I think I know what you mean by popping the middle finger do you do you mean like just uh you mean popping I think, the timing? Of I think it? more of a more of a volume thing, like uh, oh, okay. So like uh, like that kind of like. Like that, uh, yeah, that, I guess that one lick in particular. That, everybody plays that lick, but I think yeah. of Jerry's banjo playing as just being full of that kind of articulation where you're just really drawing out that middle finger a lot. Yeah, a lot of first string action. Exactly. That's kind of what you hear. And maybe playing yeah. it louder than the others. So as opposed to the Earl thing where like every note is like hyper articulated. That's yeah, and that, that, that gun, is so right? driving. That really drives a band. It's like a metronome too. The the Jerry thing is a little more like, yeah, exactly. Just like louder, more active first string. And there's nothing like there's nothing bad about that. It's just a sound. And I think my teacher was saying, like, diversify, <laughs> you know, listen to more different types <laughs> of things. But yeah, so, you know, I was he was teaching me a lot of, like, a lot of Scruggs arrangements and a lot of melodic style arrangements. Like, he he had stuff tabbed out, you know. So, um, what's that Alan Mundy tune? Molly Bloom, I remember he had that. And Bill Cheatham and all this kind of standard melodic stuff a lot of banjo players learn. And he, he had, he taught me Opus 57, you know, the Grisman wow. instrumental. Um, which, you know, it works. Bill Keith recorded that with Mule Skinner. So he also turned me on to Mule Skinner. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that 70s stuff. And then, and also Hartford, I remember he taught me, you know, Gentle on My Mind. So he definitely kind of turned me on to a lot of the bluegrass that ended up being my favorite bluegrass. Like even now, I mean, um, when I listen to bluegrass music, my favorite stuff tends to be like Kentucky Colonels, like Living in the Past or Live in Sweden. Or, I mean, Olden in the Way is awesome. I love hearing Vassar on that stuff. And, and, and Grisman and that, I mean, all of them, it's really fun to listen to that. Um, but anyway, um, you're asking me how I kind of, how my own style sort of grew out of that context of those, those initial lessons. Yeah, I think so. And yeah, what, what did you take from those lessons that you think were, were important elements of, of what you, whatever you consider you're playing now to be? And I've, I have some of my own, my own ideas, but I, I, would love to hear you talk about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I mentioned, I mean, so first of all, just the kind of listening that, that my teacher was pointing me towards, the 70s newgrass stuff, and also Trishka in particular, like he, he really liked Trishka and, was, and encouraged me to get a lesson and go to a, like a camp where Trishka was teaching. And um, that's, Tony Trishka is like so um, expressive and joyful in his banjo playing. is so much personality. Yeah. So I think that it was always just kind of like a model for me of like how you could just be when it's, you know, when it's that format of like people are taking solos and kind of expressing themselves, kind of having Tony Trishka in mind as a model for like, you can make it whatever you want to make it. Like, and I remember I went for a lesson with him. It was crazy. My parents let me do this when I was like 17. I think they let me borrow their car and drive from Eastern Virginia to Northern New Jersey it just like by myself and I checked into a hotel and then in the morning I got like a two hour lesson from Tony and I drove back. Whoa, and, big, 
banjo adventure for, I the, know. for the teenager. That's great. I'm really glad they let me do it. And it was an amazing lesson. And I remember one of the things that came out of it was I recorded, you know, of course, a little cassette tape. I recorded Tony or he recorded for me. He played um, John Hardy and he played it, you know, probably 10 or 12 times through with all these variations. And I remember just being just like the coolest thing ever. Like, whoa, yeah. like you can do all that stuff over this tune, over this tune, John Hardy, you can do so many different things. So I think that made a big impression. And then also like my teacher, Bill, like he would, when I'd see him play, he'd always have me come up and play with him. Even when I was like at a very basic level, um, wow. him and his wife, Pam. And so I think just playing with him and hearing how he, he was such a, you know, he would really drive so much on guitar and banjo. Like, I think when I play bluegrass, like I tend to like maybe take that part seriously of like, let's just like push a lot of energy into it. Like maybe physically, sometimes I want to relax on my instrument and relax personally while I'm playing. But when it comes to like creating the sound, this idea of like, let's go, you know, like that's that that right. kind of intense intensity that, you know, a lot of our favorite bluegrass musicians bring to it. I definitely got that from my teacher. So that's something I try to do when I when I play that music. That makes sense. And um, I think it is notable, notable that you were drawn to like the expressiveness of Tony. And if I in my mind, I think that's probably why you were drawn also to Jerry, because I think maybe a lot of criticism of Jerry's playing is similar to the criticism of his guitar playing. Like it's, it's not quite as technically perfect as so many other people, but it is very expressive. Yeah. So, um, I think that it sounds like that's a pattern, uh, for you in terms of what you've been drawn to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's another side of this that I'm sure we'll get into eventually in this interview, but definitely one of the sort of poles that I'm drawn to in music is that kind of like expressivity thing, especially when it's the context of people kind of passing around solos, you know? Um, but, um, but another big experience for me, like big formative thing was um, after a couple of years, it t I feel like it took me a couple of years before I really started going to these different festivals and things. But I remember um, after I'd been playing for maybe two, three years and started going to like Merle Fest every year. And um, that wasn't, you know, that was, a, it, feel, it felt far away at the time, but in hindsight, that what it's like, <laughs> you know, five hours away. So it's not that far. Um, but, and I even got to go to Telluride pretty early on, which is really oh, amazing. Cool. And, and it, at those things, seeing, uh, I guess what they call them, like the Bluegrass All-Stars, you know, Bela Fleck and, and all the like Sam Bush and Tony Rice the and Telluride Jerry Douglas. House Band, I think is what they call it. Yeah. Telluride House Band, exactly. Yeah. And um, I mean, there's a lot more to say about that crowd and how, how what an impact that stuff made. But but specifically talking banjo and, and my style, I think um, I remember hearing Bela Fleck play Nine Pound Hammer at Telluride and like doing a single, I didn't, I wouldn't have probably known to call it single string back then, but hearing him do a single string solo for it and just be, and not even like, I'd listen to jazz on the radio and like we had uh Miles Davis kind of blue album around the house. So I'd listened to like some jazz, but I didn't really like know, like I, I just kind of had a sense of it, but I remember hearing Bela play on nine pound hammer and just being like, Whoa, like he's playing jazz over bluegrass <laughs> and thinking that, and it, it just seemed again, this expression thing, it just seemed like he was free to like express whatever he wanted to over the framework of this song. And, and I think that was just, I just thought that was awesome. And, um, I think that in addition to like, I was, I was flat picking guitar because I took lessons from the, the same guy who taught me banjo, taught me guitar. My brother played guitar too. So we'd pick together and we'd do all the Norman Blake, Doc Watts and Tony Rice kind of stuff. And oh, I, awesome. and I, and Tony Rice was like, was, and is just like 
one of my very, very, very favorite, you know, musicians to hear. And of course, the drama of seeing him live too, when he'd wear all that jewelry and he'd have his suits on, he just looks so cool. You know what I mean? And like, you're just like, oh my God, Tony's here and you can't wait to hear what he's going to (laughs) do. And his guitar just comes like rumbling through the PA. Yeah. So I think- Such a presence. Yeah, such a presence. So I think being into what Tony did and then hearing Bela create those similar like melodic lines out of a closed position on the banjo, that made an impression on me and made me think like, okay, well, like, you know, how, how maybe that close position stuff will help me be able to create some of the sounds I want to create. Oh, I, I would love to dig way into this with you. Uh, so d- I guess backing up just a step, um, did you already have a concept of improvising kind of along this line of developing an expressive type of playing? Were you already, even before maybe this uh, single string awakening that you had were you already improvising and how did you approach that or how did Bill teach you to do that? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I mean, the reason why I wanted to play an instrument was hearing my brother come back from college, having taken guitar, jazz guitar lessons and like improvising on his strat. And to me, that was just Uh the coolest thing that a person could improvise. So that's kind of what made me want to play a stringed instrument to begin with. And then it became banjo. So it was always improvising was like a big thing for me. It was a big interest of mine. Um, I think the way I learned how to do it was I went to this camp called Common Ground on the Hill, which is in, uh, it's in Maryland, I think Westminster, Maryland or something, or Chester, I can't remember. But Walt Michaels is this, uh, he's a hammer dulcimer player and guitar player who used to play with with Bill Gurley in the 70s. And he's part of that whole 70s like new, uh, scene. But anyway, uh, he he runs the thing. And I went there to, I, I studied there with Tony Trishka the first year I went and with Bill Keith the next one year. Maybe I went two more years and studied with Bill, but it would be like the late night jams, going to the jams. And um, so Mike Aldridge taught Dobro there. So there are like a million Dobro players there yeah. and all the Dobro cats were like running the jams. And I just remember- um, There were a million Dobro players there? There were a million Dobro players, yeah. How is that possible? Like, is it just because, of, <laughs> just because Mike was there? Because Mike like, was the- there, yeah. Dobro is always like the least represented of, of all the instruments. It's, but, it's okay, really cool. funny. Yeah. That just, um, caught, that just caught my ear. I've never heard that before. It's really funny. Okay. Yeah. But so sorry, that, go ahead. That's right. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I think I just kind of hurled myself at the, at the solos when I had to take a solo for a tune. I didn't know it was just like, okay, fingers, like, let's go. And just, you know, okay, play C stuff, play D stuff, play G stuff. And I think um, in hindsight, like if I had a recording that, it probably sounded like totally awful, like not like something you'd ever choose to listen to. But I think as like a 15, 16, even like 17 year old kid, like I think I just kind of was like comfortable with just doing that in a way that as we get older, it's like we're a little more inhibited. But and, and it's also a gendered thing. You know, I feel like as boys, sometimes you kind of get a little more license to just kind of throw yourself at something and be gnarly and, and see how it goes. And it's OK <laughs> if it doesn't sound like really nice. And I remember even one of the teachers told me later, Guy Davis is this awesome blues guitar player and like storyteller and stuff. I think he he told me later that he had mentioned me in one of his classes as like, and I think essentially his point was this kid sounds terrible, but he's giving it his all and he's throwing himself in and he's learning how to do it on the go. I mean, I don't think he would have said the word terrible, but but um kind of a backhanded compliment either way yeah kind of yeah but and i i still admire that when i go to camps and festivals and you hear young kids just like throwing themselves at the music like i mean what a great way to learn um if the people around you can tolerate it oh right yeah no i'm i'm a big fan of 
being willing to make some mistakes and also being then gracious of other people being willing to make mistakes. Exactly. I, I feel the same way. I mean, how did you, okay, I guess going forward to the single string stuff, how did you then work on that? Um, you are now like a really skilled single string player. I think it's probably one of the like distinctive qualities of your playing is the way that you utilize that. Uh, how did, how did you develop that? How do you work on it? Maybe even, maybe even how do you work on it now to, yeah. to sound the way you do? Uh, yeah, I work on it a ton. Um, and I think, um, well, actually if I go back one bit back in the same time when I was initially learning banjo, I also took some jazz guitar lessons and most of my experience with the jazz guitar lessons was having to read music, which is so painfully slow for me. <laughs> but the thing that I got, so that was really hard and it actually kind of turned me off of even wanting to read music because it just felt like too much labor. But I remember the the first thing that teacher showed me, or maybe like the only thing I even really learned from him back then was the modes, you know, the seven modes of like a major scale. And so I think early on I had this idea of like, oh, like if you can really learn your scales in different positions and, and understand the different modes that will free you up as an improviser. So I always kind of had that idea. And then when I went to college, um, I took jazz improv lessons with this great trumpet player named John Durth and also with a jazz guitar player named Mike Rosinski. And again, it was a lot of this thing of like, practice all these different technical things and then they like it will filter into your playing and that's how you become an improviser. You know, that's, that's one school of thought around it. But maybe I'm not answering your initial so question. It's funny that you say that because on a personal level, I'm at a crossroads between practicing a lot of technical things, hoping they will filter into my playing. And what I've come to find is the way they filter into my playing sounds like I'm playing a bunch of scales and stuff. Yeah, see, that's the and thing. so there's a way to like bridge a certain gap into turning that into like what we keep talking about, the expressive type of playing. Right. Uh, do you have anything to say about how you've done that or how one could be able to do that? Yeah, so I think... Um, to me, where music comes alive is in rhythm and tone. And I know they always tell that to us. They always say the three T's, you know, taste, timing, and tone. And I feel like taste is the one that everyone's going to have their own taste. So like as a teacher, I would try not to be too kind of didactic about this is what's good, this is what's bad. I mean, students yeah. going to listen, follow their own ears. The way you teach taste is maybe just teach people to listen and pay attention to what they like or what feels good or what sounds good to them. But timing and tone, I mean, yeah. Uh, there's so much. So anyway, it, like, so for me, um, when I pick up a banjo to practice now, it's always just right hand stuff for the first while. So just kind of like, and all I'm doing is forward roll kind of pattern. And I'm kind of dialing in the, I'm kind of dialing in the timing, dialing in the tone, and also just getting comfortable comfortable in my body with it and kind of, and also I'll have a metronome going usually. So I'll choose that, I'll choose that tempo that feels good and I'll feel it first and then I'll tap it in on the metronome. So I'll feel it first, tap it in. So the metronome is set in that place okay. that I'm already feeling. And then once that's dialed in, that's when I'll begin. And after a while is when I'll begin whatever scale or harmony stuff is part of practice. So that way it's not like scales and harmony just in like a vacuum it's like you've already got this kind of uh, groove happening or this almost like a vibe. You've already set a tone and whatever's going to happen at that point is a little more musical. So maybe if I've got... 
Beta. I just went, uh, I'm in that position that probably a lot of people know, um, where your index finger's at the fifth fret on the fourth string, playing a G major scale. So that's all on the fourth string. That's all on the third string. And then I just hit one note on the second string, that F sharp, and then I'm back on the first string. So it's all just one position. And I just went up that. Uh, I just did that, but I already kind of had some time that I was feeling. So then when I practiced it, it was like more of a musical thing to practice. So I think that's, for me, that's okay. kind of the answer. Whatever harmonic thing, whatever scale thing it is, the rhythm and the tone thing is going to get dialed in first in my practice. And then I'll introduce that other thing to where it feels like music. So it seems like there's an element of improvisation, even within something that you approach as just sort of a, a scale exercise. I'd say so. Yeah. And I mean, it's not always like that. Like sometimes I'll be like, you know, I'll decide it'll be, you know, I'll just run that pattern. And there it's, it's maybe not improvising, but it's still listening. It's still with the metronome. Like I'm really focusing on how locked up, how locked up am I with the metronome? Or maybe I'll even put the metronome on some tricky kind of a setting. So I have to focus really hard to stay with it. And I'm listening really carefully to my right hand, to my tone. Like, is this the sound I want to be making? So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's easy when you practice technical stuff to make it hyper cerebral, you know, to, to make it all about thinking. And mm -hmm. I try to I try to make my practice time about listening and feeling and, and introduce the thinking in like almost like imagine almost like picture myself, picture you, if you're practicing for yourself, picture yourself as like a little five year old kid who you have to entertain. So you're not just going to be like, practice, you know, practice your free throws, practice dribbling with your left hand. You're not just going to drill them. It's going to be fun. It's going to be games. It's going to be making sure they're like kind of getting breaks or having fun or enjoying it. And I think that's how I treat myself when I'm practicing. It's like, it's got to be fun. It's got to be kind of holistic. That's really cool. Um, the, the way I became aware of your playing was uh, seeing old school freight train do these like gorilla pop-up uh, showcases like at IBMA and stuff like that. Is it skipping too far ahead in your uh, career or your past to to pick up maybe with that band and and talk about that for a bit? That sounds great. Were were they the first real group that you that you had like as a serious band with your playing? And how did that get started? And what what was that band all about? Give us a give us the rundown. Yeah. So not to go too far back, but there were a couple groups before that. There was. Um, I played with the mandolin player from that band, actually, Pete Frostick, and my friend, my good friend from growing up, Evan Morse on fiddle, and my brother, Mark, on guitar. We played in a band that had a couple names. I think we called ourselves Tidewater Bluegrass Band at one point, or half, uh, yeah, Tidewater Bluegrass Band. And we played gigs in Virginia Beach and at like a local like pub place in Williamsburg. So that was like, but that wasn't like, I guess that wasn't like a serious, like, you know, we had our local things. And then, and then when I went to college, there was this band called Walker's Run which was uh, Brandon Gilmore on, on mandolin. And um, uh, I feel like people, your listeners would have heard of, cause they've had iterations over the years, but, but that band, um, we would play bar gigs and like, and, you know, frat party gigs and stuff like that around central Virginia. And they were like, I mean, I would say that was kind of a serious band in the sense that it had that competitive thing that shows up in a lot of bluegrass, you know, where, which is like, you know, people, you can have different feelings on competition and like when the healthy and when it's not, or when you'd seek it out or not. 
but for better or worse, that band had that thing happening. So I think... Do you mean competition within members, like outdoing each other yeah. solos or... Okay. Or, or even okay. like, I'm going to kick this off so fast and see if you can play with me kind of thing. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't think I ever really loved that, but it was part of that. And it was also kind of, you know, th that's sort of a training ground in a way to, to have that kind of experience. Um, yeah. And as a banjo player, that band did a lot of stuff in minor keys. So I think specifically when I was getting into the single string stuff, it was like how am I going to take these solos in A minor on like, there's a tune called, I think, Elzik's Farewell or something in A minor. Yeah. And I'm like, how am I going to like really make that sound good? Because I didn't know enough cool like Scruggs kind of style or even melodic style to make that sound very good. So I was like, oh, I'll figure out how to do my Tony Rice licks on the banjo. Or not like note for note, but like the closed position. So anyway, yeah, that's, but yeah. but you were asking about old school freight chain, so. Um, oh, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah. Good to get up to speed. I used to really dig that band. I, I had your guys. Out. Was there only one album from that, from Old School Freight Train? I we did a few. One. We did a few. So we oh, did, okay. um, I don't remember, we did uh, a live at Ashland album. We did Run, which is the one the Acoustic Disc and Grisman uh, produced. We did one independent one before that. It was just self-titled. And then we did a whole bunch of those picking on albums. Like that was kind of a gig for us that we would record right. the, the various picking on oh, albums. I forgot about that. Yeah. That's cool. Hey folks, just need to take a quick break to tell you all about my good friends up in Lansing, Michigan at Elderly Instruments. Now you might be thinking that with Elderly's amazing selection and their fast worldwide shipping that they are some big box conglomerate store. But no, Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and they pride themselves on giving you the customer service and personal touch that only a mom and pop store can give you. So the next time you need anything for your banjo, guitar, violin, mandolin, any stringed instruments, accessories, instructional materials, and I'm talking about whether you're looking for a beginner instrument or even a high-end, vintage, hard-to-find item, Elderly's going to have you covered. It's my first place that I go. So check them out at elderly.com, and don't forget to let them know that the Piggy Fingers Banjo Podcast sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, a site that brings you streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other roots music styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in the world. Now, some of what Peghead Nation offers is a great lineup, of course, of banjo instruction. Check out these courses. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, regardless of what course you choose, you're going to get high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes to play. Now, perhaps the best part of all this is that just by being a Picky Fingers podcast listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, all lowercase, all one word, over at pegheadnation.com. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to welcome a brand new sponsor, Sullivan Banjos. The Sullivan family has been in the banjo making business for decades and have earned their reputation for the highest quality in materials and craftsmanship. Perhaps the best part 
is you get the big time Sullivan tone while getting the personal customer service of a small boutique banjo custom shop. Chances are that if you can dream it, Eric Sullivan can build it. My main banjo is proof. I've been playing and loving my Sullivan custom banjo since 2004, and it just keeps getting better and better every day. So hop online and go to sullivanbanjos.com, email them at sullivanbanjo at gmail.com, or get a hold of them the old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone and dial 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell them that Keith from the Picky Fingers podcast sent you. So what was like the, was, was there a certain philosophy for that band? Because I, I remember probably hearing it now, it wouldn't sound that strange, but I think at the time that was actually like a fairly progressive sounding band, I think. What, what was your guys' approach and how did you maybe grow as a player within that philosophy? Yeah, uh, so that was, um, it was Pete Frostick on mandolin, uh, Jesse Harper on guitar and vocals and Daryl Muller on bass and vocals and then at first, uh, Anne-Marie Simpson or Anne-Marie Calhoun on fiddle, but then after she left, then Nate Leith on fiddle. Um, yeah. So that was so fun playing playing with all of them. And I mean, I smiled when I said Nate because he especially was just like so fun to to play with him on stage. But um, yeah, I guess in the, in, the, in the initial days when it was just the four of us, Pete and I were more coming from bluegrass and Daryl and Jesse were more into like, I guess like jazz and kind of soul and like, you know, songwriter stuff. And, and they were both into um, like salsa and like Afro-Cuban music. Cause that, remember that movie, the Buena Vista social club that came out, like, oh, sure, yeah, that was a big thing. And also even the Grisman quintet in that, in the nineties was that with Joe Craven and Enrique Coria on guitar. So it was kind of like mm-hmm. more like Latin oriented version of the Grisman uh, quintet. So like, and they were all, they were, those guys were both into like Stevie Wonder and stuff. So I think a lot of the initial thing of the band was like, this is probably an oversimplification, but maybe Pete and I may be teaching them a little bit more about bluegrass or pointing them in certain directions with bluegrass and then them uh, teaching us or pointing us in certain directions with the stuff that was more like jazz or Latin or, or pop kind of. Um, yeah. And that that's sort of remained the dynamic in that band over the years. I mean, we both got into the other side of that equation, but I would say um, towards the end of my time with the band, I was definitely into the ins- the weird instrumental stuff and not as into like playing like the the pop oriented stuff you know uh-huh. um but it was all good and it was a tremendous learning experience i mean i mean jesse is is such a great um he executes so well like he he'll learn something and just plays it with just tone and timing and just totally executes in such a beautiful way so that was like i would say that lifted up pete and i both to try to like match that as best we could and and Daryl on bass, just playing with a really great bass player and hearing how bass works in these different genres of music, that was, I would say that was yeah. a really, really influential thing for me as well. That's cool. Yeah. And how did you guys get hooked up with Grisman? And what was that like? So our manager at the time, um, Ann Kingston, I think just on a whim, she sent a demo that we made to Harriet Rose, you know, who's who's Grisman's one of the people who worked at Acoustic Disc. And um, she actually listened to it and sent it, or maybe Artie Rose listened to it, and then they sent it to Dog, and, and he listened to it and and wanted to work with us. So it was like a dream come true. We couldn't believe it, you know. It was, what was his role was 
producing an album and then you did some touring with him too. Is that right? Right, right. He produced the album. He even played on one track and, and Joe Craven from his band played on a couple tracks. And, uh-huh. and then, uh, and yeah, we, then we, we toured with him and the format was that old school freight train was the opening act. And then for his act, we were like his band. So that was pretty incredible. Dang. And he basically told us like, whatever, whatever of my music you want to learn, we'll play that. So we got to choose anything that was his, his own original stuff. And that was really fun. So we did a bunch of shows like that, probably like the CD release shows in 2005. And then we kept doing stuff with him into 2006. And those were probably more like old school opening and then his own quintet as the headliner. But that was all, all really, really, um, really cool opportunities. Maybe it's testing your memory too much, but what were some, I don't know, I guess I'm trying to get at what the process was like of preparing Dog's music to to actually play with him. Like, that's pretty daunting. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, did you have any particular challenges that you were able to maybe solve or what was surprising about trying to learn his music as a banjo player? Because there's not really banjo on any of his records, I don't think. At least right. not any of his like DGQ records. Right. Like there is some of the early stuff of like Bill Keith playing on Opus 57 or something. Some of it. Yeah, never but yeah, mind. Yeah. But for them, but you're you're right. For the most part, not. Um so the the thing was that we had already been playing so much of his music anyway. Like, um, just because from the beginning when we formed, like we pretty much loved his whole catalog from like the earlier stuff with Tony Rice and that that DGQ 20 album, the three discs album, you sure. know, we loved yeah. all that stuff. So and when we would do private gigs like weddings or whatever, and we weren't playing our own original music, we'd do a lot of dog covers anyway. So a lot of it was kind of building off of what we already were doing. And, and you know, you and I have been talking about the single string thing a lot. I mean, I definitely ended up using single string for as kind of my default for playing the, his melodies because, you know, <laughs> if for the simple reason that sometimes it's more labor intensive to come up with the melodic style version. And sometimes it's a little more like, let me get the notes and I can do it single string style. Sometimes it's just faster. Yeah. Is there anything that you can remember that you feel like you learned from Dog? Maybe not necessarily music, and this is how you play this tune, but uh, just about being in a professional atmosphere or just what whatever the vibe was that he, he had. What do you feel like you took away from that experience as a whole? That's a good question. I mean, I think on the musical, it's kind of actually the same answer for both sides of the equation, but on the musical level, like, when you play with him, it's just like, there's David Grisman. Like he just knew who he was, you know, he knows who he is musically. And he just, he has such a strong, clearly articulated sound and voice. So I think that thing, and it's, and it's powerful, it's powerful, but it's also like when he's going for the sensitive and small dynamic thing, it's not like he's going to, it's not like he's doing some halfway version of it. He's all in for, you know, dynamic, like, you know, romantic yeah. little tremolo or whatever it is. Like he's all in for that thing. And I think same thing, just hanging around him and seeing how, just kind of seeing his lifestyle, like going to his house and he's got all these awesome old instruments around everywhere. And like when we were on the road with him, he'd take us to some, you know, I remember we went to, we were in Philadelphia and he took us to this like Italian restaurant, you know, and like, he just, he just really was, he he knew what he was into and he was, he would just kind of (laughs) lean into those things that he was about. And, um, it's easy, I think, especially for me when I was younger, sometimes it's easy to move through the world kind of like maybe compromising a lot. And there's something to be said for having a real clear vision of like, this is what I'm into. This is, you know, and we're talking about, we were talking about expressivity and music too, having sure, that sense yeah. of like, this is what I'm going for. I'm going to do it. 
and it's not for everybody necessarily. You know? Yeah, that's great. That makes a lot of sense. So what happened next? I know that you ended up, I really want to get into some of this ethnomusicology and some of the studies that you've done abroad. Is Was that like the next big chapter for you? Uh, more or less. I, around the time I, so I left old school for HA at the end of 2006, but a big thing for me in 2005 was um, we played at Wintergrass and I met um, Tristan and Tashina Claridge and all these like young kids who they were kind of mentoring, who were all, you know, all these people are kind of like famous now, but, but meeting all those young, like, you know, Dominic and, and, and Jake Jolliffe and, and all these people when they were, when they were like kids and Alex Hargraves, like it was really inspiring for me going from playing with the touring band to like being around the more kind of like the camp scene and just uh -huh. how, how kind of fresh it all was among those young people and the people who were into like organizing and teaching at camps like it was just all about creative process and fun and jamming. So that was like, uh, that was really a cool time. Um, so then I, and I ended up, you know, going to that, there's a music camp that Tristan and Tashina Claridge ran in Mount Shasta, California that I'd go to every year and, and teach it at night, but I'd be teaching, but I'd also just be learning so much. Like Billy Contreras would be there and like, I would just learn so much from him. And I, I still, like, I got a couple of lessons from him recently. I still learned so much from him. So I think that was like, that was impactful but and around the same time, I was kind of burning out of of touring and performing so much, and yeah. So then I, I quit. I quit um, old school at the end of two thousand six, and then I guess did more stuff with like you know the Claridges, you know, in that year. But then I guess by two thousand eight, I was going to grad school um, for ethnomusicology, and just kind of um, I think I was just wanting to lean back into the the like learning thing more, like mm -hmm. less about like, let me get out there and, and perform, perform, perform all the time. And more just like wanting to learn more. And so eventually, um, eventually that the, the shape that the focus, all of that took was to learn more about um, uh, this type of music from West Bengal, India called Baal music or Baal Fakir music, which is, I guess you could call it like a folk tradition. It's uh community of musicians who play it, the songs are like kind of like spiritual and religious songs. Um, and the yeah. instruments they're used are, you know, there's an instrument that sounds a lot like banjo that's called dotara. And the musicians are just really, um, the people who I met were just so um, just accessible and just like fun people to be around. So that was a whole, yeah, that was a whole chapter of its own. I lived over, I lived in West Bengal for a year in 2012 and 13 and um, just got to meet a lot of really amazing people. And one thing that was cool about that experience is that I had, I only had a fiddle with me. I didn't bring a banjo for that whole year. That's it. You're off the podcast. <laughs> that's, that's disqualifying. <laughs> but ever since then, I've just been so fired up about it. Like that year, I was like, <laughs> I'm right. going to travel with a fiddle. It's small. And then ever since that year, it's just been like, I, I've just, it's been like, I'm 15 again with the banjo and just, it's, it's like, it's just the thing I want to be doing all the time, you know? Real quick before I forget to ask, you said the the instrument that sounds somewhat banjoist, dotar. Is that what you said it was called? Yeah, uh, dotara. So D O T A R A. It's. I mean, it's this and, very same thing. Yeah, it's just, it's wood. You know, wood with a head on it. You know, four strings. I 
I'm I'm endlessly fascinated by yeah diff- music from other cultures and things. Like what are I I'm happy to listen to anything that you have to share about what are some elements of that music, maybe even elements that you've been able to incorporate into your style or you know I I don't even know what to ask because I'm not familiar with it. But yeah, I, I would love to hear all about it. Yeah, I mean I guess the things that come to mind are like. Um, Probably a lot of your listeners know about like raga, right? Like in, in classical music from South Asia and this idea of like essentially kind of like a mode or almost like a scale, but there's certain tones that there's certain things that might be flat or they might be sharp, whether you're ascending or descending and it's got this whole mood to it and there's not chord changes happening, but this whole piece is taking shape from that one, that collection of notes and the way they work together. So this type of music I was studying, it wasn't a classical tradition, but it operated in that same way. I guess the really a really big thing that that probably has like made a big impression on on my music is a lot of the music they play is in six eight and but it's like the way the way they articulate six eight is very different than like the kind of I think we think six eight and we often think of like jigs and like a lot of like like Irish and Scottish music and stuff. Um, yeah, it's like in two basically. Yeah. yeah, and and that's and that's true with this that you know you kind of like you know one two three four five six. Um, but like a lot of the, the the way they might articulate that is like so it's like different um different emphases and it's still more i mean it's pushing and pulling a little bit but it's more or less within that 6 8 grid dadra tall is the name of like the the name for that rhythm but um before I got into that, I was studying some West African um, drumming with this um, a great teacher from Ghana, Nani Agbeli, who was teaching at Tufts. So I was in an ensemble that he taught. And there's also a lot of stuff in that kind of 12 8 feel. One, two, okay. three, four. So when I first heard the Bengali stuff, I was like, oh, it reminds me of the West African thing because it had some similar syncopations happening. And then, um, and I think, um, so anyway, that, that, all that stuff I think has made a big impression and, and definitely is stuff I've practiced and shows up in my playing in different ways. Even on your new album, isn't there one that's kind of in that time signature? I, yeah. I haven't got to listen to it too many times, so I'm just sort of just going from memory, but I seem to remember hearing that. Yeah. The second tune on the album is called On Hold and it, it kind of sounds a little bit, um, I guess it sounds a little bit Celtic-y, but yeah, it's in that time signature and, and, and that's, it's just, it's an, it's kind of made an imprint on me. So when I'm, when I'm in six, eight, those are a lot of the rhythms that are just kind of coming up a lot for me. And, and of course in jazz too, like in jazz, a lot of times, like I'm thinking about Elvin Jones and some of like a lot of times the same kind of that 12, eight feel shows up a lot in the way that jazz players are approaching four, four. So that's a big thing. And, and like hip hop too, you know, a lot of hip hop that I, some artists who I like to listen to do a lot in that feel. So all these like really novel ways of uh, approaching, you know, six, eight, or even if you're in four, four, bringing that triplet feel in and, and then moving the triplets in, in, in ways that feel really cool. Do you have any ways of demonstrating that to put you on the spot? Yeah, now? yeah. Um, you know, even just like I mentioned the right hand thing as a warm up. Let me get a metronome on so people can hear where, the, yeah, where I'm sure. feeling as a downbeat. This is a good example of something that kind of begins as like a technical thing, but as soon as you're doing it, it's more like improvising or kind of feeling your way through it. So like, um, yeah. So like, um, oh, so actually, okay. So right away, we're into something. 
Um, I, probably some of your listeners have practiced the two against three thing. One, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, one, two. So you kind of feel, or you could think of it as like a slow triplet. So I'm going, I've got this. Yeah, it's like a quarter note triplet, I think would be like the musical notation. Exactly. Way of saying that, yeah. So I've got this kind of metronome going here. Maybe I'm playing. And double it. But then play with it, play shifting with these shift between the two. So like, uh, and then maybe, you, and then maybe as you go on in your yeah. practice, you spend some time in those fields, but then maybe you go into the four field sometimes too. So like. kind of playing with it yeah yeah and then that interesting and then that kind of feeds into how you might do things when you're rolling or when you're in single string style and likewise like if i'm practicing scale you know back to that scale that we were talking about earlier you know maybe sometime i'll be practicing like keeping it in that that six eight feel or so many playful yeah, things cool. and any one of them takes a lot of work to really to really get used to it but ultimately once you get them ingrained it's like it just it's it it, it just it, it then just becomes kind of the way you speak and it comes out later yeah i think banjo players are so accustomed to the solid stream of eighth note roll bass playing that it seems like leaving one of the fingers out should be easier and give your fingers some rest but it's like way harder than just playing the stream of of notes to like leave certain ones out here and there totally it's just whatever you practice like if you practice that way then that's easier and if you practice all stream of notes it's harder to leave them out <laughs> yeah yeah so everything that we've talked about kind of leads you to where you've ended up today and you've had like some solo albums and like regular listeners will recognize you we profiled your your first solo album is there a way that you would describe your playing style today and what kind of things are you maybe working on today uh like what's your typical practice routine and and i i guess you've already demonstrated <laughs> a, a lot of it but I, I guess i'm just trying to figure out like what you're what you're into practicing lately yeah um so definitely a lot of the stuff we talked about um and I mean, so I mentioned Billy Concheris before I got a couple lessons from recently. And then I, he, I actually got to play on a gig with him. He came to and performed to the place where I teach at Warren Wilson College. Um, so uh -huh. one thing we haven't talked about, but I, I, I teach in that department. I'm actually, yeah, I'm about to be chair of that department in the fall, which is a while. Whoa, and, congrats. Yeah, that's really yeah, cool. It's kind of crazy. It's, it's sort of a big responsibility, but so that's happening. And I guess I'll just do a little shout out that, you know, we do a lot with trad music there. So people want to come study banjo or in Wilson, like that's, it's a big thing of what we do. Um, but anyway, Billy came and did a concert and I played with him and he, he sent us these charts ahead of time. It was like really wild time signatures and, and tonalities. And, and so I've been kind of inspired to practice things in five or like, you know, these, the scale that he uses, like, uh, uh, this is getting pretty esoteric, probably not of interest to most listeners, but, but he, he, you know, he was using a lot of stuff from, uh, 
a harmonic major scale, you know, which is like, um, instead of you've got, you've got that flatted six. But then if you start to make pentatonics out of it, you get these very pretty sounds, like maybe instead of your regular pentatonic, instead of your major pentatonic, get your, um, just to lower yeah. the sixth. And then actually, okay, so this feeds into a thing that I practice a lot. So you choose a pentatonic scale you like a lot, like let's say that one. And then actually, you know what? Let me, let me just make it a major pentatonic scale so people can follow along a little better. So okay. you have your pentatonic scale, and this is the thing I like to practice. Like, pentatonics are awesome, and it's they're really cohesive. You choose five notes that sound good over a chord, and you know you're not going to go wrong because all five notes sound good over the chord. So you choose your set of five that you want for a given chord. But then a really fun way to practice them is to make make them. So I'm on the first three strings. So let's just be G, G major pentatonic. You know, so these notes, and and um. Uh, um, I'm I'm doing them like actually let's start here. So I'm starting on this A note down here, second fret, third string, and then the B and D open. So I've just got the notes from the pentatonic scale right in a row, and now I'm just going to go up vertically on the neck of the banjo. So it's going to go to. So now it's the, and you kind of keep going up the neck, and you and you get, and then I'll kind of roll through it. That sounds pretty linear, but then what's cool is then you start to adjust it. So now instead of going, let's go, we'll skip to the next note in the pentatonic. So now I've got two open second string, second fret first string, and now I'm going to move those all up the neck. And each each note is just going to go to the next note in the pentatonic, and you get. And you start to get very pretty sounds. And if you kind of decided for yourself already that th those notes sound good over your chord, like any of these inversions work, and then you can get really sprawled out versions. Like, so now I'm going to be on the, the fourth string. So I've got my A note with my ring finger on the seventh fret, my B note on the third string with my index finger, and G with my pinky on the second string. So it's kind of a sprawled out voicing, but it's so pretty. Yeah. And that, so. It's really, really pretty sounds. That last yeah. one was not was not uh, from the pentatonic, but yeah. So stuff like that. I love practicing stuff like that. And and I I don't know if we ever mentioned we should probably give like a sentence or two for people who aren't aware, like who Billy Contreras is, just oh, yeah. to put in context the type of music that he makes and was demanding of you <laughs> to play. <laughs> yeah. So so Billy, um, He's from uh, like Franklin, Tennessee, outside of Nashville. And people nowadays he plays with Ricky Skaggs's band. He plays. He's on some of the Bale Fleck, My Bluegrass Heart album, and he's right. he's been on some of those tours. Uh, he played with George Jones in the last band I think that George Jones had on the road. He's just like a jazz fiddle. I guess Wonderkind is not the right word. He's not a kid anymore. But he he was like a prodigy with jazz jazz fiddle and contest fiddling and stuff growing up. And I think like there are these recordings of him at Mark O'Connor's camp when he was you know 
16 years old, like just doing unbelievable things. So he's one of those kind of uh, people, you know, who started really early and he has this like tremendous focus. So he's just like, he's just um, one of the musicians who, who I just am kind of uh, continually a little bit in awe of and have a lot to always feel like I've got a lot to learn from. Yeah, and he's he's not afraid to get like pretty far out either. He's uh, yeah. almost like the the John Coltrane of bluegrass fiddle or something like that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, he can be out there. Yeah, and then at but, the, yeah, extremely and, talented. And then at the same time, though, like if you look if you look up um, him playing with Skaggs's band, there are these videos of him playing Uncle Pen, and it is so fun to hear the way he plays Uncle Pen because he he manages to like uh, he's he's real conceptual and he manages to like plug in his concepts even when he's playing with Skag. so like it's not like he's doing these like really out note choices but he's doing these subtle things that are anyway it's like it's very fun to hear yeah it's almost it's almost similar to what you described about Bela's solo on nine pound hammer it's right it's like hear, hearing dudes whose creativity take up more room than what what bluegrass usually is but then they're shoving that all back into a smaller box and it's cool to see how it turns out yeah it's pretty amazing so i guess i mean we we already devoted a whole episode onto your first solo album tell us about the brand new one and is this did this just come out or is it not quite out yet what's the what's the status on this? not quite out so um the album releases on march 22nd so that might be just came out for people when people might be listening to this but it's very new very recent uh fresh music yeah yeah and it's um so it's it's all um it's 13 original uh, instrumentals, and um, it's with some, it's with um, three of the same people from the last album. So um, Dan Klingsberg on bass, uh, Nick Falk on drums, and Duncan Wickle on fiddle and cello. And then with the addition of Ella Jordan also on fiddle, um, who's mm-hmm. you know I, all these. This is like my dream team. So for me, just to get to play with these musicians is just incredible, and they all have so much. Um, so they have so much personality that comes through their playing and they're all the kind of musicians that like playing with them makes you sound better. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it just, the, the, this new album, it's called hidden animals and um, it's, it's pretty eclectic. You know, I like to listen to all kinds of music and, and I think when I write music, I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to create the sounds that I, that I most want to hear and um, you know, find how, how can I, what are like the, my favorite sounds I can find on this instrument the opening track is more like jazzy and a little little far out as far as like you know where people take into some of the solos then there's a lot of things on the album that are more just like um 
I was just trying to write something that sounded really pretty and cohesive and nice and contained because we've been we've been talking so much on this episode about this idea of improvisation and expression. But the other, th- I would say the another pole for me that I just love in music and I love it at imp- when it shows up in improvisation too, is um, things that are just so they just feel so crafted. So like a lot of times I, I like a song or a tune that's like short. And it just feels uh-huh. like just the right little length. And for me, yeah. um, a couple of things that come to mind, a couple of examples that come to mind of this are um, certain songwriters I like. So like Margaret Glaspie has this album called Emotions and Math. And these songs are just so, just like perfectly crafted in the production. And another songwriter is um, Dory Freeman, who, who is actually Nick's uh, wife. And Nick, Nick plays drums and, and is producer on that album as well. She has this album called 10,000 Roses and like, just these like perfectly shaped uh, songs. So I think some of the instrumentals on, on, on the new record, some of them get into the improvisation and all that kind of stuff. But a few of them are just like, they're, it's not, they're not like through composed because people can take liberties in how they play their part. It's not like you have to play note for note the thing, but it's more about like the shape of a performance and the listening and interaction and less about like taking turns on solos. You know what vibe it really gave me was, are, are you familiar with any of like brad meldow's solo albums yeah it gave me that same sort of vibe where it it has like it sounds free in a way but it also sounds really concise and there's just a vibe to it and they play the vibe for a while and then it's the the next thing but it's it does what it does like really well i'm a big fan of his and your new album kind of gave me that same sort of feeling thanks that's a that's a huge compliment yeah i love his music and He's one of these musicians too, um, where like, I just, his touch, his tone and his execution, it just sounds so nice all the time. And there's always that sense of listening. Like, um, so these musicians who I work with on the album have that quality too, but, but yeah, definitely that's, I I like that approach a lot. You mentioned when you were talking about composing the tunes for the album, you said you just tried to compose what you wanted to hear on the banjo, I think is what you said. Yeah. Would you be up for maybe like, picking one tune on the new album and maybe talking about what it was that you wanted to hear on the banjo and then how you composed a tune to like achieve that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me think of, um, but yeah, let me play a little of this tune. I'm going to put a metronome just so you so you can like, can like hear the downbeat. Cause I feel like the melody kind of obscures the downbeat a little bit. Um, yeah. it's this tune called low roll, which is, it's one of the tunes that, you know, the name is just like, for you know banjo players we play rolls and it's on featuring a low string so i called it low roll so yeah um this is just like it's a rhythm that i liked and um i'm really only fretting one note at a time and it's just trying to carry the, it's it's just articulating a sort of a melodic rhythm that i like a lot and keeping the banjo rolling the whole time you know like like how we like to do a lot of times you know um so like uh Thank you. 
a little out of practice with that one. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's just an example of like coming up with the melody, like just sort of feeling it, you know. And kind of art thinking of a melody I'd like and then just finding a nice way to put it on the banjo where you just kind of keep rolling with it. And that tune is kind of unusual in that it's got a... Like I do a lot of things where I'm hitting my thumb like twice in a row, which I guess Crow and all these great bands and Scruggs, I think, you know, would do that. And I think um, historically I've not done as much of that, but this tune kind of called for it. Is that what you're doing on those da, da, th- those type of notes? Yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, you're doing double thumb on that? You've the... Right there, like... Wow, okay. All the fast ones are just double thumb. Um, Interesting. It took practice to get up to it, but um, sounds like what you're saying is that you had that melody in your head prior to even trying to execute it on on banjo, or that's how it started. Was a melody. Well, you know what, though, now that you say that, I'm realizing that's not the case. I think um, I think I was trying. I think that was a kind of rhythmic articulation that I was messing around with on banjo. So no, it wasn't it wasn't a melody that I fit onto banjo, but it was kind of like a certain kind of rhythmic syncopation and wanting to have a melody that had that kind of a syncopation fit, fit within it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um and I guess I'll go off on a tangent now hearing you talk about double thumbing. I almost forgot to mention that you you are one of the members in the exclusive club of four-finger banjo oh. players, are you not? Well, I am kind of a name only. Like I, I do wear this pick all the time, but I hardly ever actually use it. Um, huh. Like there's a there's a few chords in like a few of my tunes. Like that's a chord that shows up in a lot of Stevie Wonder's music, where it's like um, it's this crazy left hand shape where you've got your. It looks crazy. I can't quite see what the chord would be, but yeah. <laughs> so I've got like my my picture. If you played an A chord at the seventh fret, you know. Yeah, I've got that A and C sharp down with my pinky and ring, and then I've got the B string open, so you've got that kind of sound. And then I'm with my index finger, with like the side of my index finger, I'm on the E note on the first string. So it's like seven, six, open two. It's a really convoluted shape, but that's. It's like a lot of these Stevie Wonder songs that are in major keys have that kind of a sound, and I just love that sound. So that's in. Uh, one of the tunes on my new album called Castle Music, where there's like other voicings like that's another, that's less convoluted, like fourth fret, second fret, open, second fret. That's a chord that like jazz piano players would do a lot. And this is very pretty. So there's certain chord voicings that where I want to be able to pick four notes at once, but I, I'm not really, I'm not, coordinated enough to really pick with it as its own thing and even though there's all these really cool things you could do with like the you know this technique we all do like that kind of technique you could do like triple stops if you were clever about it yeah but i just i don't know i just don't have my tone dialed in with it so i i really don't use it very much (laughs) yeah got it got it anything else you want to say about your your new solo album before we move on i mean i definitely encourage people to to check it out. It's if you listened to the Heartlake album, it, it does kind of follow in that footstep, you know, definitely an extension of that. Really good stuff. 
Yeah, I'm trying to think what else to say about it. I mean, it's it's on Ajarupa Records, which is this um, really cool label that people can like look at some of the other stuff on there. Um, they they I think they describe it's an artist owned record label, and they describe themselves as putting out music that kind of doesn't really fit the categories that a lot of other labels have, you know. So it's some interesting stuff on that catalog, including this great new album by I'm trying to remember. Did you just interview Matt Flinner, or were you about to about Joe Walsh's album? I, I would love to, but no, I, okay. I did not. I don't know why I've that was in. Spoken to Matt. I think I'm yeah. thinking about the fact that he was at Banjo Summit. That's why I was thinking about him. But anyway, okay. Matt Flinter plays great banjo on this new album by Joe K. Walsh that's on that same label. But anyway, yeah. that came to mind. I would just say all those musicians, like I don't know if people have heard of them before, but those people I mentioned who are on this album, they're all just such nice musicians. And um, I bet a lot of people have heard of Ella Jordan because she plays with Mile 12 now with, with the amazing B.B. Bowness. Um, sure. And Ella's just incredible. And, and having her and Duncan both on fiddle on some tracks is so fun. Like, I, I love that thing of having two fiddles and then hear what their voices sound like trading phrases and stuff. to uh maybe tell us like what what your main banjo is i assume it's the same banjo that people will hear on the on the album as well it is yeah and it's it's a different one than heart lake so this is it's a it's a tb1 with a robin smith neck and it's it's if when you look at the neck it looks like it would be like it it was built for a top tension but um i ended up getting it because you know people buy (laughs) trade necks and stuff all the time so Uh even though it's got that top tension style uh you know, inlay, it's, you know, I've got it on a, on a TB1 and, um, Gabe Hirschfeld helped me find these. Uh, he, he, someone has to name drop him in every episode, I think, <laughs> but he's a great, <laughs> great dude and amazing banjo player. He helped me find, um, the, the pot and the neck separately and, and then kind of coached me through, you know, getting, getting together with this guy, Chris, well, the, the amazing Chris Warner, who I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, cause he played at Jimmy Martin is a great setup guy, neck builder. But but um, Chris, you know, helped helped get it all, helped fit the neck for me, and it, yeah, great instrument. Is that a nerve wracking process? Investing in this like pot and this neck that you don't have a way of playing, and you you know you just have to like have blind faith in a in a way that it's going to work out, and you're going to like what happens. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of money too. You're <laughs> just like, well, I guess I'm just spending this money now, and, yeah. and hope it sounds good. But I did have a thing, an advantage, which is that. Um, this pot, um, Noam Pekelny owned it and he, 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 I can't remember if he's artist works or peghead or peghead nation. He's artist works. So on his artist works thing, he had a video where he's like demonstrating how you like messing around with head tension. So he basically sent me that video so I could hear what the banjo sounded like under his hands, which of course, you know, no one could play anything and it's going <laughs> to sound like an incredible instrument, but you could tell like it sounded really, really good. So, so you know, Gabe basically told me that, you know, Noam had this instrument for sale. So I bought it from Noam and then, um, I ended up selling the neck that Noam had. And 
What's kind of funny is that the neck that's on here is one that Noam originally ordered. And for some reason, it ended up floating around and I bought it from Jake Sheps and then had to have some repair work done because it was a little bit warped. So I, I guess I guess I had it somewhat vetted that it would that it would sound really good. Yeah, yeah, cool. And I guess to clarify, if if I recall, you had like a goofy neck on the banjo on another banjo of yours where it also looks like a top tension neck, but it's twenty four frets, right? <laughs> right, right. So then and this is not that. This is not that. Not that type of stuff. Okay. So there is news with that though. I still have that banjo. That's a Heartland banjo. Um, that, you know, Robin Smith built the neck and the pot is one thing. But I recently sent that neck to Chris Warner and he converted it to being regular 22 frets. So that banjo sounds way better now that it that it's no longer that long. The, the bridge is no longer floating in the middle of the head, but it's in the regular yeah, spot. Right. And that, that banjo sounds way better now. It's, it's funny that we're talking about this because right when you were demonstrating those big stretch chords, I thought you had an advantage with your 24 fret neck when you were doing that. But as it turns out, no, you were, you were really getting those on the, yeah, I mean, on the that, same thing we're all working I, with. I don't normally play chords that are that hard to play, but there are certain four note voicings that are just really nice to be <laughs> able to play all four notes at once. Totally. When did you get this banjo? You said it wasn't on Heart Lake. So this must be like a relatively new thing for you. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's an interesting thing. I think the experience of recording Heart Lake, I was really happy with the album. And also like you make an album and you listen back to yourself and you start to notice things. And I think, um, maybe it wasn't Heartlake, maybe it was something different. Anyway, I was shortly after making Heartlake, I wanted to get a banjo that just cut more. I think, you know what it was, it was getting this new job in North Western North Carolina and playing more bluegrass with people and just wanting a banjo yeah. that cut better through guitars and stuff. Um, and this banjo definitely does that. So I guess oh, I got cool. it in fall, maybe fall 2020 or something. And take us through the rest of your like gear preferences, whether it's uh, bridges, tailpieces, picks, heads, you know, all, all the geekery. I mean, if I'm being honest, I just kind of ask Gabe or ask, you know, Wes Corbett a lot of times because, you know, he, Wes always has such an amazing sound, you know, like they both just have know so much and have such great sounds. Like I'll just ask them for recommendations and tips and stuff. But so I've got these, the, the pro pick uh, heritage picks, you know, that people are mm -hmm. talking about the Deering is selling. I am trying to remember who maybe Wes recommended these. Um, I have a total junk pick on my ring finger. I mentioned how I don't really pick with my ring finger. I just have some like brass colored, like 0.018 Dunlop pick on my ring okay. finger. I don't know why Real it's, soft. Like, yeah. it's like comfortable. I don't know why I don't upgrade that. Yeah. Um, but then I've got the, for thumb picks. So actually Joe Troop turned me on to this. Um, he was playing uh, probably every, all your listeners already know about it, but he was playing a blue chip, uh, like resonator guitar, like Dobro pick blue chip Dobro pick. And is that like a thicker, is that thicker? Is that what makes it a rezo pick? Uh, yeah, I, I think it's like, I don't know if it's thicker or just wider. Um, oh, okay. But uh, I tried his and it sounded really good. The only thing is that my fingers are like between what blue chip large is really big. So I'm too, I'm too big for their medium, but a little too small for their large. So I have their large and I just put some moleskin inside of it. Like there's like adhesive moleskin on the inside to make it a little snugger on my finger um, Interesting. The one thing I don't like about it is that there's metal on it. That if you click against your if you click against your index finger, it's a metal on metal click, which is louder yeah. than a plastic on metal click. So I've actually thought, and I even put a little bit of like sticker on some of that metal to mute that sound in case I do click. But it may, I think maybe I'll get maybe I'll put some very thin moleskin on there or something. But that's what I'm using, I, and I love the way they sound. 
anything else? I feel like we've covered quite a bit and learned a lot about you. Is there anything that you meant to talk about that we haven't covered? I mean, I guess I'm just thinking back what, what we've talked about and how we're getting it to tone now. And I think like when I was starting, I was really focused on notes and harmony, like notes mm-hmm. at first, you know, how to take it, how to play all the cool notes in your solo and how to learn all the cool notes from the recordings. And that's always, that never stops being fun. And then, you know, I think in college studying with these, with, you know, people who are teaching jazz, it was like, how do I learn all the harmony stuff or how do I you know try to learn a lot of harmony stuff? And I think, um, I think over the years, I've really just come to like realize that like one thing that transcends genre of music is, is the quality of rhythm and the quality of tone. Like, you know, whatever type of music you're listening to, probably your favorite musician, the way they place notes in time and the, and the sound they get is probably a big part of why you like it. So I think those are things I've been focusing on more and I practice rhythm stuff all the time. And, you know, I think tone is one of those things that I'm still hungry with. And we're all like that, you know, we're all like, well, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I can't swim. I'm not going to be able to afford like a, a pre-war flathead or something, but just thinking like, um, I want to just, I want to keep on figuring this thing out for just getting that. I mean, I think we're all after that, you know, how do you just, how do you really, how do you continue to just develop your tone? And that's something I'm just still trying to figure out. Yeah. Never ending. Definitely. Well, how about you leave us with at least uh, any websites that we should check out to to find out where to get your album, maybe to go see you play if you're performing around, uh, all that all that business. Yeah, so um, bencrackhour.com is, that's like, you'll find all my tour dates on there. The Bandcamp, like just search my name on Bandcamp and you'll find my uh-huh. the new album, Hidden Animals and the old one, Heart Lake. And it's not that old, but the, the, the other one. Um, oh, I should also mention I'm playing a lot with this band Zoe and Cloyd, which um, some of your listeners know because Bennett Sullivan is a great banjo player. He he plays he he plays a lot with them, and I've been playing a lot with them recently. Um, so you can check out their tour dates. I'm on a lot of that stuff. And in fact, actually, I've got a CD release show coming up that Bennett is playing guitar on, which is pretty fun. He's a great guitar oh, player too. Cool. Um, and uh, but yeah, those seem to be the relevant websites. If any, you know, if if any of your listeners are interested in in like you know, Warren Wilson is a place to study banjo and other, and other things related to, you know, trad music or jazz or whatever, you know, they can, they can look up that, look, learn about the program on, on the Warren Wilson website. Yeah. And you get to study with Ben, uh, face to face and learn, learn all this stuff in way more depth. <laughs> and the cool thing about that camp is, is a lot of times it's just sitting outside, you know, it's like, uh, when oh, the weather's wow. nice, we just have class outside. So that's another cool thing about that place. That does sound pretty nice it's a snow day for the kids today out here so uh man what a difference all right ben well thanks so much for your time and for for talking about your your banjo style with us uh great catching up to you and and hearing about it all thanks for having me keith it's a lot of fun i'm a big fan of your show so thanks for thanks for making it happen That's going to wrap up this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. The song clips you heard in this episode were Brushy by Ben Krakauer, Twin Sisters by Doc and Merle Watson, Eurydice by Old School Freight Train, some Indian music from a YouTube video titled Chol Mini Assam Jabo, Basudeb Das Bal, and Friends. So I 
I hope I didn't slaughter that name. Email me if you'd like a link to the video. Next, it was On Hold by Ben Krakauer, Lonesome Boy by Billy Contreras, and then Hidden Animals and Tidewater, both by Ben Krakauer. Thank you once more to Daniel Miller, that's today's Patreon supporter of the show. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to support the show yourself or email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks everybody for listening. I will see you all next time. Dick it,